Thanks for checking out the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. To find out more about us, visit our website at iloveelevate.com. You can also stay up to date with what's going on by finding us on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. We hope you enjoy this message and it brings you closer to Jesus. Tonight is our final week in our series called Manna. Moses, through the leading of the Lord, led the Israelites out of Egypt through these crazy miracles into the desert, and God provided for them every day with bread, miraculous, out-of-heaven bread. God sustained his people in the wilderness. And so we asked the question, how does God sustain his people today? In the first week, we talked about how God gives his people rest. Maybe that was sort of different and not what some of you guys were expecting. Next, we talked about how God gives us each other, our spiritual family, And last week was so much fun. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And we took a massive subject and just sort of melted it down to something powerful, powerful, and incredible truths. And tonight, we're going to answer that question. How does God sustain his people today? The manna that he pours into us now is he gives us his word, his holy scriptures, the Bible. The Bible is not one book. It's 66 books from 40 plus, plus, plus authors who spoke different languages, who lived in sometimes very different countries across about 1,400 years from 1440 BC to about AD 100. The ink dried on kind of the last page from the apostles that knew Christ. And despite their different personalities and their languages and the different different contexts of being in time, they attest miraculously through crazy wild continuity to one God of one character or the same character pointing to the same purposes and how he interacts with man. It's, it's absolutely crazy that the Bible was collected like this. Imagine a thousand different puzzles And imagine that all those puzzles are incomplete because they're all missing pieces and they've been scattered all over the floor, all over this room. But somewhere in this chaos is one complete set of pieces mixed into all of this incompletion. Through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, God used people from priests to kings to shepherds, musicians, he used a tax collector. He used some fishermen. He used people you would never, ever expect. And he spoke through them to begin putting pieces of a puzzle together. This puzzle would be his revelation of who he was. If God is so transcendent, how can we ever know him or have access to him? The only way is for our God, you remember this? If we can't climb the ladder, he has to climb down the ladder so that he can reach out to us. He has to reveal himself, his character to us. And through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, beginning with about Moses, who took these ancient genealogies and ancient oral tradition, passed down, and he began writing. And then that was passed down, and then that was passed down. And God would use these incredible figures to add to this puzzle, creating a fuller understanding of God. That puzzle was full and it was beautiful and it was sturdy, but it was incomplete. 
until the author and the finisher of our faith would step onto the scene. The one who the whole puzzle was meant to frame. Here we go. We have this puzzled frame. And then here comes the beautiful masterpiece of God's plan. And it is Jesus Christ who completes it. That makes all the pieces work together. That makes everything make sense. This whole Old Testament history from the beginning of time where Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are dealing and showing us that man blew it. And then Genesis 12 through Revelation is God's plan and how he deals with sin, how he brings his creation back into connection with him. Jesus would be that crowning center. And all the laws and the wisdom and the history and the poetry and the songs and the genealogies and the victories and the losses and the enemies and the heroes, all of the deepest questions of mankind, the most pervasive struggles that we have, all of this is pulled together to shine the light, the focus on Jesus Christ. And we call this puzzle the Bible. It is a phenomenon of continuity. And there is no other document, there's no other book that has ever held a candle to the absolute genius and unrealistically cool things that have happened to bring together this picture for us. None. I dare you to find another faith or another book that even comes close to the brilliance of an almighty God at work showing us himself so that we could know him. When I was a kid, I used to love camping. I'd spend a lot of time in the woods and I would take, I mean, I had all the camping gear. I still have all the camping gear. And I remember I was in the woods with a friend of mine and we were trying to hike from one place to another. And it was, actually, we had the luxury that on this stretch, we were walking on a road, like asphalt. And it was so dark, there was no moon, there was no stars, absolute pitch black. It was so black that you couldn't see the edge of the road. You would be walking and suddenly you would hit dirt and trees. It was actually kind of freaky. And so one of the solutions that we had is we would actually walk with one foot on the road and one foot on the dirt going back and forth. And then if you lost the road, you knew to sidestep, you know, and get back on the road again if the road bent. It was really crazy. And so one of our solutions was... We didn't have a flashlight at the time, some great campers we were, but we had a single dim green glow stick. You ever had one of those things? You break them, they're a lot of fun. You can like bite them open and splatter them all your face and get cancer. It's awesome. We had a single dim green glow stick. And you know what? It wouldn't show the road. It wouldn't show further down. All it would show was about the next step in front of us. And so you take that step, okay? And you look for the next one, okay? I can see. And that was it, this little dim green glow. Let's look at Psalm 119. We're going to start in verse 97, and then we're going to jump to verses 103 through 105. This is, this is beautiful. May this ignite something in us. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. 
Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know, I think sometimes God shields us from seeing a mile down the road. I think often he just wants us to have enough faith to take one more step. Knowing that he's got us for the one after that. Psalm 119 is a, is a very, very cool psalm. It's an acrostic. It's actually based on the Hebrew alphabet. Every stanza begins with the next letter in Hebrew. They don't really know who wrote Psalm 119. A lot of people try to ascribe it to David. He wrote about half the psalms. He wrote 73 out of 150 psalms. And so it's, it's sort of easy to lump it into to with him. But also people have argued for King Hezekiah. They've argued for Jeremiah. And some people even think Daniel wrote it, which I think that'd be kind of cool. But I think that the authorship isn't that important because God was less concerned with us learning about the author and more about the author's passion. And out of 176 verses in this really, really long psalm, 176 mention God, and 173 out of 176 mention God's word. Our author had a passion for God's scriptures. And at this time, all they had was the first five books of the Bible. They had the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. And, and this author was crazy wildly in love with studying and learning about God's word. The point of this whole Psalm, I hope sometime you, you'll sit down to read it. You can't help reading it and not walking away like, wow, I need to read more of my Bible. The point of this psalm is so simple. It's God's word is awesome, and it's awesome in every way that matters. It's going to touch on every aspect of our lives. Our author here doesn't see God's laws as some sort of harsh edict, but he sees it as a source of joy and hope and faith. And out of his heart, as you read through this, you learn that our author has resolved himself to do three things, to one, to know God's word, to obey God's word, and to love God's word. Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm sure you know this. 3.16s have a strange thing in the Bible. They always seem to be really cool verses. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Another translation says that scripture is God-breathed inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God gave us his word. Through all that time and all those scattered puzzle pieces, God was revealing himself, inspiring these men to write down and prophesy about who Jesus would be, about who our father is. There's a lot of analogies that the Bible uses to compare itself. What's awesome is that we don't have one book of one author attesting to themselves. I'm right because I say I'm right. No, it's 66 books and 40 plus authors all pointing to the same truth. It's wild. I love it. It's so cool. And there's a lot of analogies, and I think every one of these analogies are important, and I hope that you'll unpack some of these in small groups tonight. In Psalm 119, God calls, or our author, unknown, calls the word the law. In Luke 8, Jesus calls it the seed. I think that's cool. Seed goes in small and it grows and becomes something. But what do we know about seed? It doesn't just grow something. It grows something that produces 
That's right, more seed bearing fruit to produce more seed and then exponentially grows. That's so cool. In James 1, it's called a mirror that it, it forces us to look at ourselves. Ooh, that's not always a pretty picture. I'm not talking about the outside. I'm talking about that it, it reflects on us. Where is our righteousness in connection with Jesus? It's usually pretty rough. In Ephesians 5, Paul calls the scripture the water that Jesus uses to cleanse the church. Amen. In Hebrews 6, 6 that author, also unknown, calls scriptures the anchor. The anchor that holds us steady when everything else is wild and crazy. When we're tempted to be blown off course or things get so hard that we don't know, we're just turned around and spinning. We're still stuck. We're anchored to something that's stronger and greater than ourselves. In Jeremiah, God's word is called a fire and it's purifying his people. In Hebrew 4 and Ephesians 6, it's called the sword, the sword of the spirit. Hebrew says it's a sword that's double-edged that cuts right into us. And Ephesians says that it's a sword with which we do battle in a spiritual realm. It's kind of cool that whenever you quote scripture, you're actually breaching outside the realms of the physical world and you're doing battle in a realm that you can't touch or see. This is the crossover. How wild is that? Other analogies are a hammer or milk, gold, honey, rain, snow. All of these things have powerful meaning. Coming back to the question, what does God give his people to sustain them today? And there's two analogies that I'm going to look at briefly. One, God calls his word bread. Luke chapter 4, Jesus, who represents Israel, God called the nation of Israel his son. He calls Jesus his son because he is his son. And Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's tempted, right? Into the wilderness, 40 days, Israel, 40 years. Are we seeing like some cross connections? Totally on purpose. Jesus is fulfilling where they went wrong. He is holding a standard they couldn't hold. And he's in the wilderness and he's tempted by the enemy. And what's the very first temptation? It reflects Israel's first big struggle. Because when Israel was out in the wilderness... They lost their faith and they complained and said, God, what are you going to do? Let us starve. And God provided miraculous bread. And so here he is, the son of God in the wilderness, representing the nation, son of God in the wilderness. And he's hungry 40 days in. And Satan comes and says, wouldn't it be appropriate, even poetic, if just like the first time around, if you're, if you're God who provides bread, why don't you turn these rocks into bread to sustain yourself? But Jesus towed a line that Israel couldn't, who stands as our example for us, that he didn't doubt. He knew where his faith came from. He knew where his strength came from. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful. This is Moses, and he's recounting what God had spoken to his people that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, test you, test you, question mark, and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger. God allowed them 
to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What did Jesus get right? Do you think God led the Israelites out there to let them die? Was that his master plan? Go before Pharaoh and go through these years of of miracles. Bring them through the Red Sea. Get them out there and then, oh yeah, I forgot to feed my pet this morning. And they starved to death? Like, really? But instead of trusting in a God who had shown them incredible miracles, they lost their faith and complained. And so Jesus toes the line for us. He shows us the example that, you know what, when it comes right down to it, we have needs that are much greater than hunger. And there's a sustenance and there's a nourishment that goes far beyond food. That's God's word. Our physical needs pale in comparison, in comparison to the nourishment and the strength that God gives his people through his word. There are needs that are greater than food. Can you think of some things that are greater than hunger? I think being around someone who's hungry is worse than being hungry. Anxiety, fear, the feeling of being lost, spinning, purposeless, hate, foolishness, brokenness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are things that if you could trade being hungry for hope, I'd be hungry all day. But God's greatest purpose is to deal with our deepest and most awful need because all have sinned and fallen short. And the wages of sin is death. And death is separation from the God of life. And separation from the God of life is only hell that's left. And so God's word provides sustenance for his people. Dig in, find it. It's beautiful. And it goes way beyond hunger. Actually, footnote, it reminds me of Jesus. Remember, he just comes from the woman of the well, John chapter four. And the disciples come to him and they're like, hey, have you eaten? And he goes, actually, I'm good. And they're like, what? I thought you were so hungry. And Jesus says, you know what? I've had food that you don't even know. You don't even understand. I think he's talking about God's word. It satisfies in a way that's deeper than just hunger. Our deepest need is also met by God's word. God's word is also compared to as light. The greatest need of all that we have is life. We need salvation from death. In John chapter 9, there's a story where Jesus finds a guy who's born blind. Jesus approaches him. He's never known sight. He didn't lose his, his eyesight in some sort of accident. It didn't fade out over years. He has never known what it was like to perceive anything but darkness. And Jesus finds this guy. And before he does a miracle, he turns to the crowds and says, I am the light. I am the light of life. And then spits in the mud, rubs on the guy's eyes, and the guy sees. His darkness was made into light. Jesus is trying to communicate something here. He's not interrupting this guy's miracle because he felt like stalling for time to make mud. Jesus is trying to prove something. He's trying to use this guy as a physical example of what Jesus is going to do spiritually. He is going to take who is blind, 
me and you, those of us who can't see or understand a transcendent God, who are lost in the darkness of our sin. And he's going to open us up to understand and see something that is life. He's going to save us from our darkness. John chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, we can understand this about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. Jesus is the light that opens our eyes and reveals. But what are we supposed to see? Okay, so he's the light. Is he just, yay, yay. No, no, no. He is revealing something. He is opening the eyes of our hearts and minds to see something that we couldn't have seen by ourselves. A darkness that we couldn't have gotten rid of. John chapter 17, verse 1 through 3. Jesus defines what salvation is. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. All right, here it is. How do we define eternal life? And this is eternal life. Definition. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The definition of eternal life is knowing God, not knowing of God. The the demons know of God. And they quake in their boots, if they wear boots. They know about God. Yeah, you can know everything this says, but if you don't, if you don't break through from head knowledge to a relationship, you're still blind. Isn't that crazy? How can we come before the table of the Lord week in and week out and leave hungry? And I can tell you it's because we're so busy munching on our napkin We're so busy eating on the silverware and on the plate that we never actually move from head knowledge to the place setting to the actual food and the nourishment that he gives us because it's worthless unless it begins with a relationship with him. The word of God is light. It reveals the character of God. Imagine, imagine that Genesis through Malachi are those puzzle pieces of the frame. Let's, let's do a different analogy. Imagine that they are a letter from someone who loves you most. And they're going to set the tone and the understanding, and, and you're going to learn so much about the person that wrote this letter to you, but you haven't met them yet. And when Jesus walks on the earth, when he climbs down the ladder and steps foot, it's the first time you get to meet the writer behind the letter. And they work together perfectly to reveal God. Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 14, and they say, show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus says, duh, haven't you seen me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm in him and he's in me. Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus is the perfect image of an invisible God. How do we know Jesus? Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit that would put together a way for us to know him. And so if knowing God is salvation, if his word lights up 
the revelation of who God is, then this brings us full circle back to Psalm 119, doesn't it? Your word is a lamp unto my feet, and it's a light unto my path. But you have to understand something, that this writer wasn't in love with God's law because of its merits. He wasn't in love with Scripture because of its truth. He was in love with the giver of Scripture, the speaker of the law. He was in love with the giver, not the gift. And if we don't make that leap as we read, if we don't make that leap as we study and as we pray, then we're still stuck munching on the napkin. And we haven't made it to the meal that God is offering us. An old philosopher named Albert Camus coined the phrase, life is a bad joke. It doesn't have any meaning. Mary Antoinette is famous for saying, nothing tastes as in life has no fulfillment. I want to read a quote from an amazing guy named J.I. Packer. And he says, These disorders blight the whole of life. Everything becomes at once a problem and a bore because nothing seems worthwhile. However, Christians are immune, except for the occasional spells of derangement when the power of temptations presses their minds out of shape, and these, by God's mercy, do not last. What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this is the, and this, the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be to know God? What is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? Thanks. It's to know God to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Is that on the screen? It is to know God, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. That is the purpose of life. I haven't found my purpose. You've got a good one. What did God create us for? It's awesome. People keep telling me that I'm just a product of mistakes, that everything just happened to get here through random chance over billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years. The magic formula that makes stupid possible. But you have, a, you have a purpose. To know him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. I want to leave you with this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Here's my challenge this week. Dig into your Bible, tear it up, write in it, wear the pages out. I love to see a well-worn Bible. Here's my challenge. Begin with prayer. And this is a very simple prayer. Father, through your Holy Spirit, help me to know you more in learning about Jesus. And with that prayer, open up the book of John and read just a portion every day. Notice I didn't say chapter. Chapter. Sometimes chapters are too long. And sometimes we use chapters to break up points. 
which is sort of frustrating. Just read a portion. And when you get to some portion, the end of it, and you're just like, wow, that was good. Stop right there and remember your prayer. Lord, help me know you more every day through the power of your Holy Spirit as I learn and know Jesus. And then write something down. Here's my thoughts. This is what I feel God is speaking to me today through what I read. Pray, read. doesn't have to be long, just a few verses. Journal it. And as you read, study the context. What do the verses before and after have anything to do with it? It sort of bothers me that chapter 2 ends with, Jesus, with it saying about Jesus, and Jesus knew what was in a man. And then chapter 3 opens up with the phrase, and then there was a man named Nicodemus. But see, if you don't read those together, you don't realize Jesus knows what's in a man, and you know what? He saw Nicodemus coming. So sometimes it's not good to stop at chapter breaks. Read a portion. Look at the context. If you have a study Bible, look at some commentary. Savor it. Savor every word. Look at what this verse means in and out. Study it. Pray about it. Father, through your Holy Spirit, reveal to me so I can know more about you through Jesus. That's my challenge. John, pray. Journal. Heavenly Father, we give this back to you. Bless our conversations. Bless our e-group time. Lord, I pray that your word would do its thing. Plant seeds in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.